Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Our guest today is a fifth-generation Floridian and a Palm Beach County local. He grew up listening to his grandfather and uncles tell the stories of the legendary Captain Charles H. Coe, who died at age 98. Charles Coe authored a late 19th century book titled Red Patriots, the story of the Seminoles, 1898. The book was a mixture of history and lobbying, an extended plea on behalf of the Seminole. It aimed to educate the U.S. Congress and the public about the Florida tribe. His idea was to gain political support to ensure the remaining Florida Seminoles could be left alone to live on their own lands in the Everglades or anywhere in Florida without eviction by property-hungry settlers. Coe's great-grandson, Andrew Foster, has popularized Coe's noble legacy. He is a living history speaker and a local historian who dresses the part as Captain Coe. Andrew joins us today to discuss Charles Coe and his impact on Seminole and Florida history, and what he himself has learned portraying Charles Coe at talks throughout the state. Andrew Foster, welcome to the Seminole Wars. First question, in his long life, he may never have met a Seminole, and yet he wrote this book on their behalf. Why? He'd never met a Seminole. Now, when he moved to Florida in the 1870s, there were people that still lived in his town that survived when the Seminoles attacked the sugar mills, and he had spoken to these people. And we thought, well, perhaps that's what got him going. But I literally was doing a talk on Co in St. Augustine a few years back, and uh, a gentleman who is known as a uh, seminal historian was sitting in the back, and I was telling the story of how my grandfather got his name, which is Maine Reed. And that was one of Charles Coe's favorite authors. Well, after the talk, he promptly informed me that Maine Reed, the author, who was an, a Scottish author who lived in uh, England, in 1854 penned a book called Osceola and the Slaves of Florida. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went off, and I went, my God, that was his favorite author. He had to have read it as a child. Well, that had to be the catalyst, and it was very interesting. We, we didn't know about this book, and I was sent a copy of it, and uh, once I started looking at it, now, by today's standards, the accuracy of history is a little bit off, but it was written by a man half, half a world away and had enough information to spark Coe's imagination. And as Coe was growing up, you know, he, he was required by his parents to be a, read fine literature, and this was apparently on that list. Who was Charles Coe? Well, uh, for me, he was my great-grandfather, who unfortunately died nine years before I was born, but uh, he was born into a wealthy Connecticut family, and uh, his grandfather, and this will be important later on, his grandfather was Israel Coe, who at one time was the congressman for Connecticut, and later uh, dropped out of being a congressman and became an entrepreneur in the copper world and became Connecticut's largest copper baron in the day, uh, owning four copper mines in Eagle Harbor, Michigan. 
and that's why they were so very wealthy. And my great-great-grandfather was asked to run those copper mines. So Charles Coe was a tag-along to crisscross the country. He would go to Michigan, and but unfortunately, copper mining was very bad for his father. So from he would get sick working the mines, and then they would do other things around the, around the country. And Coe, you know, was uh, homeschooled at that point, and his parents insisted that he get the finest teaching they could have, you know, could possibly do. And so he was well uh, versed in education and reading and such. So he was very good at what he did. One of his early passions was to become a newspaper man. And while they were in in uh, Wisconsin, answered an ad for the newspaper. Now this is during the Civil War, and he's a young boy of close to 10 years of age. They asked him to, uh, you know, well, can you read and write? He said, certainly. Of course, they had had checked him, asked a few things, and next thing he knew, he was making a dollar a week to start because there were no men. They were all fighting in the war. Uh, By the time he was ready to quit to go back work on the farm with his family, they were up to $2 a week. When he finally said, no more, I can't do it, they offered him $3 a week to stay because he could read and write and do better than most of the people that were still there. But uh, that was his first passion in life. Uh, Boy, and we say that... uh, he wore many hats in his lifetime, and he was quite an interesting entrepreneur throughout his life, doing many, many things. Uh, like I say, newspaper later became his passion, and he started his own newspaper, worked for three in his lifetime, and owned two of his own. Uh, joined the Printers Union. I still have his 1885 Printers Union card from uh, from Florida. Uh, it's still in pretty pretty good shape and amazing that it survived all this time. He was a farmer, he was a naturalist, he's a genealogist, of course he's an author, he was a port collector, a poet, a photographer, and a boat captain. I presume being a boat captain is how he got the name captain. Uh, yes, well, he, uh, he had three boats. His first one was uh, when he lived in Washington, D.C., and he would run the Chesapeake Bay with a 37-foot uh, cabin uh, cruiser sailboat called, of all things, The Seminole. And he bought that shortly after he wrote the book Red Patriots. Uh, then later he uh, came, started uh, going back to Florida, and he kept a boat in uh, Jacksonville, and uh, it was a 30-foot cabin cruiser called the Buccaneer. And uh-oh, he ran that up and down the coast of Florida, and uh, eventually he wound up with a third vessel. Now, he would charter them out, and uh, sometimes uh, he would contract people to go with him and to uh, do exploring of Florida, and he would hire these people. Well, people would go along deliberately with him just to, uh, you know, dig in Indian mounds with him. I mean, he, that's how, how crazy is that to sign a contract to go with an older fellow to dig in Indian mounds? <laughs> Why did Charles Coe believe that seminal resistance to removal was patriotism of the highest order? Well, think of it. Think of it this way: you know, they're they're uh, they're told to leave a place that is their home. They've lived here for many generations, and suddenly, you know, they're told to get out. You know, we've bought the place. We want you to leave. You know, and they they sent an envoy there to see what Oklahoma was like. They didn't want to go there. It just was not the place they wanted to be. So, you know, they realized that they were going to be, you know, hunted down or killed by the military if they didn't go willingly, and they weren't going to go. So, like like our forefathers who fought against the British, they weren't going. They were going to fight for their rights, and they're fighting for their own, for their very way of living, their very way of life, for their family, for their children. You know, I mean, what, what nobler cause is that? You know, so in his mind, they were patriots just like we were fighting against the British. 
He stated that he wrote the book from the perspective of the Seminole. What do you think he meant by that? Well, it most think of most uh, books written in the time. You know, they were always from the perspective of the of the soldiers. You know, and you rarely fought, you rarely wrote the books from the side of the people that you defeated or fought against. And he wanted to show their side, what they had to endure, what they had to to do just for their very lives. Now, most soldiers were here because they were told to, because they were ordered to fight these people. But, you know, they, they were here fighting for their families, like I said. And you want to show what they had to endure, what they had to think, and how they had to fight against the U.S. Army. How did he uh, end up uh, researching this book? When he uh, moved uh, to Carolinas for a while and then moved back to Washington, D.C., and to find work there, and he actually became a uh, printer for the U.S. government and worked there for over 30 years before retiring. Now, while he was there, he had access to the Library of Congress, and for him that was a huge wealth of information, and he spent all of his spare time there researching. Uh, he would uh, buy these catalogs where he could buy used books, and if they had anything to do with Seminoles, he was buying it, you know, researching it. Uh, there was a, a huge slew of books when I was a kid based on the Seminoles, uh, that have unfortunately you know gone bad or disappeared. I have a few uh, books, even some from the 1800s still. He did everything he possibly could to try to be as accurate as he could, but we are also talking 1898 when he finished the book, and there was no internet. There was, uh, you know, no nobody really was writing a whole lot about the Seminoles. The few books that were there were not very not very big or very accurate or covered a lot of the Seminoles. So, you know, he had to dig for a lot of information over those years. The benefit was that he was in Washington, D.C., correct? Oh, yes. That, that was a big asset for him because uh, what he couldn't find or buy, he could go there and, and at least research uh, openly from there. And, you know, the fact that he worked for Washington, D.C. and Congress and such in that area, you know, he could he had access to some of their stuff. So uh, he, he had quite a bit of uh, information to write, uh, to work with, fortunately. What did you find to be the greatest revelation in Red Patriots? Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of interesting information. I, I think the one thing about it is he was trying to show the people that what we did to them was not right. And as he put it, he tried to prick the imagination of the people and let them know that we were fighting people, not some savages. You know, this, this was a war to remove people so we could move in. And that, I think, was something that, uh, you know, he was trying to show people so that maybe he could gain a little sympathy for the, for the Seminoles. And uh, one, of the, one of the other things I think is funny is that uh, here he wrote this book, and he wound up one of the writings is about uh, a battle that took place in Jupiter, Florida. And that's where he winds up living the last years of his life and dies in the town that he wrote about one of the battles. Why did historian Charles Tebow describe Charles Coe's history as only a backdrop for his plea to Congress? Well, you've got to think of this for a moment. You know, he's written this book, and he's one man trying to show Congress in his own way what he thought they should do. He wanted them to see that what we did to them was wrong, and we needed to do something to fix it. You know, 
by giving them their right. Now, he was a one-man show at that time, wandering the halls of Congress because he worked there. Now, referring back to what I said earlier pertaining to his grandfather being a congressman, when he would walk up to the congressman, you could do that day, he would introduce himself and say, I'm Charles Coe. And one of the first reaction is, oh, are you related to, and he also had family in Congress. There were other congressmen in his family and in the House of Representatives. So that would get his foot in the door. Now he's handing out books to these people and explaining to them why we should give them their right. Now he's not on the congressional floor fighting. This is not being recorded. This is just a personal one-on-one hoping to get their interest peaked so that perhaps and hopefully they would do something for the seminal. You know, he was merely one man and he never went before Congress, so it never really got the momentum that he wanted. But you have to look at it this way, he was the catalyst for pushing this. The interesting part is, you know, he wrote this book in eighteen ninety eight and was trying to gather momentum and from the public. He was already working on the congressional floor, you know, in the hallways and the offices and doing his best there. But what happened in 1899, and Professor Tabu even speaks of this, is that shortly thereafter, a society was formed called the Friends of the Seminole Society. And they were, there's a write-up that he did in the, the uh, Tequesta. And if you read it, it talks about them rallying around two books of the day. One was Coe's. This started a human rights organization that was fighting for seminal rights. Who knows if they had even met a seminal before. Why does a reading today offer something useful for our listeners? Well, it is a piece of history. There, There's a lot of information there that is uh, pertaining to primarily the Second Seminole Wars. It, it is one of the longer parts of the war. I mean, we uh, most people realize it was broken up into three parts. Unless you talk to the Seminoles, then it's one big war, in their opinion. And uh, technically, we've never sur- they've never surrendered. So technically, we're still at war with them, and they could charge up at us any time. <laughs> Very interesting that the uh, detail for the day, you know, with no Internet and such, you know, there's a lot to, to be learned from it. Now, there, there are... You know, if if we really scrutinize the book, there are some inaccuracies that we know today. But at the time, this was, you know, ahead of its time. No one had written a 300-page book like his before, siding with the Seminoles and showing what was going on. So there is a lot of good information in there if you take the time to read it. I don't presume anyone talked to Seminole or got their reaction to the book at the time. But how have today's Seminoles received you and uh, your promotion of Charles Coe's book? That is an interesting question, and my best is, uh, thought is mixed. And it depends upon whom you talk to and how extensively they've read the book. Uh, I can think of a Seminole right now that doesn't like Coe because he is under the impression that Coe is trying to put them on a reservation which is the farthest thing from the truth. He, he didn't, that was something he was against. He wanted Seminoles to be able to live wherever they wanted to. But because they wound up on a reservation, there are some things that he was part of that. Uh, I've read, spoken to other Seminoles who were elated by the book, loved the book, and were grateful that he wrote this. And that, to me, was gratification in its own just to know that. And, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, there are, and there are ones never heard of the book, have no clue, but I don't push it upon them. And I'm always very sensitive when I speak to them because I don't want to offend somebody who 
you know, doesn't understand Co. And, you know, if they're willing to listen, I will try to explain. But if not, I, I respect them and do not try to push it. What does your participation consist of when you go to battle reenactments and various engagements around Florida? I do like to go to them. They're very educational. Uh, I love to do uh, photography while I'm there. I, I help run a, a Facebook page pertaining to uh, to reenactments and war uh, history and such of the Seminole Wars. So I do a lot of that. But I also go there to learn. Uh, I've, I'm with a group that participate in reenactments, and I'm always going to them to try to learn from the others how they've been doing it, uh, how can I better ours, and, and of course, I'm always there for support. Uh, I've, I've gotten to know many, many of the people involved, and it's a lot of fun. It's, it's always a joy to go to those. My kids love going to it. My wife likes going to some of them. So it, it, it really is a, a, a wonderful thing to do, and I, I enjoy it almost too much. <laughs> Are people a little perplexed because they go to a battle reenactment, perhaps thinking they're going to see some living historian or reenactor from the era, from the 1830s or the 1840s being portrayed? And when you say, yeah, I'm Captain Coe, who wrote a book in 1898, they may wonder, yeah. what are you doing here? Uh, yeah, I I've, uh, was invited to uh, to show up as Captain Co one time, and and uh, <laughs> I did get a few interesting looks. And then, but then once you explain who I'm representing and what he wrote, then people go, oh, oh, it, it makes sense. But yeah, I, I look a little out of place, and I've only done it a few times at the request of some of the uh, reenactment groups. Uh, yeah, I do feel a little awkward trying to tell them I'm representing the the battle reenactment from the 1830s. It, yeah, I look a little out of place, but uh, Coe always looked like he was dressed for church. Always wear the the jacket and the coat and the tie and the hat and the captain's hat, suspenders and and uh, everything else. So he was always a character. How do you prepare personally for living history events, and what do you bring to them to represent Charles Coe? Well, uh, I get invited here and there to various historical groups, and uh, uh, I was uh, asked one time I should start dressing up as Captain Coe, so I hit the thrift stores and uh, put the outfit together literally in one day. Uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, I've got a, a, a coat. Uh, I have many pictures of him, fortunately, standing on his boat and dressed this way. So it's not hard to reproduce it. You know, I start wearing, a, like I said, I've got a tie and a jacket, <clears throat> suspenders, a brass belt that matches his, uh, even a pocket watch, and uh, a captain's hat that was difficult to find one plain like his. But uh, uh, he spent a lot of time exploring the east coast of Florida in, uh, in old mountains and stuff like that. Unfortunately, a lot of them are gone today, but uh, he did uh, collect several relics and uh, such from the ancient Indians. He, he didn't try to get too much into the uh, seminal stuff. So I have some of those still in the family collection, and I bring all various artifacts, stone, uh, I even have stone uh, axe head, uh, scrapers, arrowheads, you know, a, a plethora of all kinds of interesting things, and I will bring them for display, and uh, the kids love it, I mean, when I'm doing family-type uh, uh, displays. And I also carry, a, uh, we're not sure exactly what they may have called it, but it's uh, known as a silt, and it's uh, what they call greenstone that comes from up north. But it looks like a giant uh, pestle for like a mortar, mortar and pestle, and they may have used it that way. But the thing's about 20 inches long. It's almost three inches in diameter and very heavy, and I will set it out on the table because the kids can't hurt it. But uh, the look on the parents' face, like, what is that? And I said, oh, well, they used it for, you know, breaking down, you know, seeds or milling stuff. I said, but the women kept it handy in case the husbands got out of the way because they could club their husbands to put them back in order. And they all look at me like, where can I get one of those? 
Why do you do this? Funny thing is, a few years ago, I wasn't doing this at all. Uh, I wound up uh, joining a, a historical group uh, in our town. I got invited, and uh, because uh, a few people in the group were aware of my great grandfather's uh, book and were big fans, and was asked to, uh, you know, come along. And after a couple of meetings, they said, "Well, we would like you to stand up and tell us about him." Well, I mean, I've talked about it. I've never done it in front of a group before so this was kind of foreign to me and i said well you know i just talked to them like i talked to anybody else and uh, they told me well we'll give you about 20 minutes but if the crowd likes it we'll, we'll give you the sign keep going keep going well 45 minutes later i'm still going and they everybody's mesmerized and i'm going you know i i wasn't prepared for that long of a talk and finally i had to stop and say you know i, I wasn't prepared but I thank you very much for listening. One of the uh, early members, uh, who is an author and big historian, a big fan of uh, Charles Coe, stood up and gave me an ovation. And he was in his late 80s. And and uh, I want him to speak at our next Histo History in the Park event. And I'm going, uh-oh, what have I done? <laughs> I've never done anything like that before. And, you know, they said, oh, you need to start doing it. And they got me to stand up in front of a crowd of about 40 people brought some of the artifacts, but I just came in a t-shirt and jeans and then did the talk. And they loved it. And I'm going, wow, you know, people actually want to hear about Charles Coe. And then I got hooked. <laughs> I've been doing it ever since. And that's been, uh, I think, five years now I've been doing this. Prior to that, I've never done anything like it. You know, there's a concept from G.K. Chesterton. They call Chesterton's Gate or Chesterton's Fence. Uh, which is just because you don't know why something is there does not mean you should tear it down. You should need to find out what its purpose is, and then you could determine what to do. And I think Charles Coe, in educating the public at the time and the Congress, helps us today in understanding who the Seminole are, why they're here, why they're here before the rest of the white Americans moved in, there are two sides to each war. You know, there there are people coming through and the soldiers are told to attack these natives because they're bad people. Well, the Native Americans are defending the land because of the bad people coming after them. You know, it's a different point of view. And, you know, and the Seminoles, you know, unfortunately, you know, for many, many years never were in the good light. They were just the people on the side of the road selling goods. You know, they were a tourist attraction. Well, it goes much deeper than that. They, they are part of Florida. They are Florida history. And and this was their home. I mean, they were forced here by us because, you know, we, we drove them out of the eastern uh, colonies and they came to Florida to get away and then we came after them anyway. So uh, very sad for them. Well, I hope this discussion has piqued our listeners' interest in Red Patriots. How can someone obtain a copy of the book today? Uh, it is still, uh, you can get uh, paperback versions of it. Uh, uh, through Amazon or eBay, most any of these book places, uh, you know, carry those. I actually own an 1898 edition. Uh, I have the bicentennial edition. Actually, I have three of those. One was given as a gift, and I bought two for my children to have. Uh, that one is my personal favorite, merely because there was a new intro added to it, written by my grandfather, talking about Coe's travels. Uh, you know, how he wound up Florida and, and about his uh, newspapers and you know, how he worked on the book and things things of that nature, which, you know, is a little more important because my grandfather wrote it. And uh, it was a, the Bicentennial book are a 25-book series that the Florida State uh, decided to commission. And what they did is they uh, reproduced books they believed were historically accurate or, you know, true to Florida. And uh, his was asked to be on it. They approached my grandfather and wanted him to 
write an intro, and he wrote about 20 pages of the intro, uh, you know, talking about their travels, and it's really, you know, and I, I love reading that more than I do the book itself. Uh, it's, it's a lot of information. It's really interesting to follow that. How can someone book Charles Coe to speak before their organization or gathering today? Well, uh, they can call me uh, directly or email me. Uh, there is actually a Facebook page uh, called Captain Charles H. Coe, uh, author of Red Patriots and the Florida Star which was the newspaper he started in New Smyrna back in 1877. If you have an email address you'd like them to contact you at? It's uh, emerald, like the stone. It's E-M-E-R-A-L-D underscore minders, M-E-I-N-D-E-R-S at bellsouth.net. Andrew Foster, thanks for being with us today. No problem, and thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.